episode of the Sports Medicine Project. Kelly, how you doing? How's things? They're alright. Alright? Yeah. How's the right. week? Good week? Good week, kind of. Yes and no. Yeah, I mean, let's kick it off. I mean, we've got part two of our episode with Nikki Manville, again, talking proximal hamstring tendinopathies, mm. and our second most popular episode off the start behind Michael Nisky. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. cool. You need to start checking the numbers. Yeah. I'm telling you. I'm not a numbers gal. Yeah, the data data is everything these days. It was mm. it was good. So Actually, Joe Skipper was talking about data and in... in um, what was he saying? He was like, the one thing that I want to be able to see more, this is a bit irrelevant, but the one thing mm. I want to be able to see more of in like triathlon races and, and just general oh. races is like mm. data. Yeah. Like, that would be cool. Like um, how with the marathon or like, with any kind of racing like where they show their pace. Or like triathlon, like their power output in, yeah. a, in a cycle. That's it, I reckon that'd be cool. Yeah, it's I'd, difficult. Just after today, I'd have such a... Pre- most of them would have power meters, I reckon. Yeah, but then how would you Back have... on the Zwift, my 155, I was yeah. dying. You could, but then how would you have that meter, everybody's meter, projecting to some or system to then identify it? Yeah, well, say if you've got 20 elites, then you've got to somehow... Like, how is it going to get there? It has to be super through cellular data because Bluetooth wouldn't reach, you know? So if you've got a power meter and you're 180 kilometers or 90 kilometers away on a triathlon, it's got to project all the way back to the hub of the technology to then send it out on the TV in real time. It'd be a huge ask, but it'd be awesome. That would be cool. That would be cool. Yeah. I know they can do the you're pace, a which is good. You're a logisticus man, aren't you? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just like, that realist. sounds cool. Yeah. I want it to happen. Mm, it would be awesome. It would be awesome. What I would love to know is during the race, I'd love to know the percentage the foam compresses on each strike. That would be pretty cool to see. It would be different. What do you mean? For each person. Yeah, I know. I want to see everyone's individual foam. How com- would they do that? I don't know. See, that's well, something that I can't understand. Yeah, well, you were saying these things can just happen. They just put <laughs> these little measurements on the foam. Or maybe they could put like a, um, I don't know, something on the bottom of your shoe that says... Mm. How much? Like like when you go into athlete's foot and you walk on the thing and it goes <sighs> Don't like bring up the colours. <laughs> Don't bring up athlete's foot. Come on, we're having a good weekend. But that's weekend. kind of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. How they get you walking on the, um, what do they call it? It's called something shows now. Shows your pronation. No, no, no. Oh, yeah, it does show. It shows, oh, I've heard some where, horror like, stories from heat, there. Where the yeah, yeah, pressure the, um, pads. The pressure tr- pads. My 3D it? fit scan. Or whatever called? it's called, where they walk on and it shows you where the pressure's going and it's like, well, there's so many, oh, yeah, it, there, I don't know. Some some people are really good there, and I'm I very much. I don't want to talk about athletes put in a bad light. I've just had patients that have reported some horror stories for me. But then again, I'm sure patients have told some horror stories about me. I just don't like the the importance they place on all the technology when it's probably not that important. Mm. And they give inosols. That's the other thing. They give inosols when they aren't indicated. But then again, so do podiatrists. So I can't get too angry about but didn't that. Didn't you say like an off the shelf? Uh, but these ones, sometimes just as yeah. But, and this is when I when we talk about off the shelf, like they still modify it. Yeah, they're semi custom and they're medical grade. They're talking just like a slim pass of foam, not even foam. It's like leather. I don't even know what it is. But then again, some people have probably got the results from it. You started me on, and then we're going to start talking about the good feet store. Let's just yeah, let's bar cap this. it at that. Yeah, <laughs> cap it. So how was how was your week? Good week, highs and lows. It started off good. So this time last week, I was carrying on about my PB. Mm. And then, and prior to that, I said, I'm going to have a week off running after Blackmore's. Just a skeletal reset, as Stuart Warden likes to call it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I got carried away. And then I ran 
13Ks at like five minute pace, which is a fast uh, mm. run. Tuesday? Tuesday. Yeah. Tuesday. Yeah. And then on Wednesday, I ran in the morning and in the afternoon again, a, a little bit faster than I probably should have. Mm. And my shin has flared up for the first time in about 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. The other side to the side that and I had the bone shin, stress injury. And when you say whereabouts? Medial tibia. Yeah. Medial tibia. So I had a bone stress injury of my tibia last year. It was on my right side though. And mm. this time it's on my left, mm. which makes me a bit more optimistic. But I'm a little bit mm-hmm. down in the dumps about it. Mm. So I've gone full like patient mode and I've started stretching like mad and getting mm-hmm. the tennis ball into it. And then even came to you for shockwave. Yeah, yeah. It's and I was planning on having just three days off and trying to run today, Sunday, mm. but hopping was painful. So I've decided to give myself a full week off, maybe 10 days even, mm. um, which hopefully just settles settles the dust. Yeah. I'm hoping it's just, a, it was a big spike in load, not necessarily load, like overall kilometers were less, mm. but the intensity of my runs yeah. were higher plus just coming off the back of a cold and things like that, I think yeah. might have contributed poor to sleep this. In there. Poor sleep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So flare up of my shin. If it was a tendon, I'd just probably run through it a bit and be a little bit less um, concerned. But mm. I, I do take anything bony at like quite seriously, I guess you could say. And I just tr- try to avoid pain at all costs with those ones. So yeah, it's gotten me into a little bit of a yeah and nope. we always talk about bone bone conditions bone pathology sitting on a continuum with like which i guess most pathology does and you know down one end is stress fracture and down the other end is, is healthy bone we were we're pretty confident or, or even you were saying you were pretty confident it's probably more the a bit of a periostitis inflammation than an yeah. actual pathology to the the bone itself yeah um, so that probably indicates not as long as a recovery time but still you, you've just got to recover unfortunately mm-hmm. and, and any loading and it's more the intensity which increases the peak ground reaction force um it really flares those things up yeah yeah i, I don't think it's anything like stress reaction it's quite mm. a vague type of pain yeah um so on the anti-inflams avoiding or any really load-bearing stuff at the moment yeah. if, if you were a patient that had this what, what would you say, would you give it a similar recommendation or a week or two off and you would explain to them it's probably, or it's likely it's not as serious as a, a, a stress reaction or stress fracture? I think so, based off... Mm, someone on that one. Ah, wow, that's such a weird sound. Um, based off the literature that I've read, if you try and run through pain like up to a four out of ten with MTSS, it can. It's um, it, there's a study where it took like over a hundred days until people mm. got to eighteen minutes of running, mm. which is so long. I, I just think it's better to just give it a rest when it's super acute and see if you can just settle it down and and then gradually reload yourself slowly. Yeah, yep, yeah, you're right, one hundred percent right, and it can be really difficult, and that. That was one of my lows for the weekend was was seeing a patient with an injury and and really delving into not just the their biomechanics and the pathology but the impact this injury has or will have on their life while they're recovering and all the things that they can do. So they were quite a social person doing you know running and 
and playing sport and touch footy and, and things like that was really important to them. And yeah, seeing the impact it, it will have on their life for you know the next four to six weeks just goes to show that there are so many other psychosocial things that are attached to people's pathology. And sometimes it's not always your job and you don't have to delve into all those things, but just understand it's not as, as easy as saying, hey, just rest, you, you'll be fine, it will get better because it's likely that it will but you're not the one that you might be seeing them a couple of times for 30 minutes in six weeks, but they're the one dealing with this injury, missing out on things they love, and it can really have an impact on their life. So, yeah. And that all can also can then play into their experience of pain, how long the injury takes. So, you know, just be all-encompassing of people. Totally. Like, I'm a hardcore catastrophizer. I'm the first person to admit that, and I would say I have a very low pain threshold. <laughs> but also... Yeah, you too. Um, you too. I, I, I totally right. get that though like I, I, I don't think I run at all on my own and I think that's part of the problem mm. like every single run that I do with through the week is with a friend social. or group or something like that so yeah. that that's a huge like knock to the the social life really yeah definitely and but I also think as I was saying to you before I think that's part of the problem is that a lot of my runs are influenced by the people that I'm running with rather than just doing my own pace and my own sort of recovery runs. So yeah. that's probably something that I need to be more aware of as well. Yeah, and whether you just need to be aware of that in the short to medium term, you know, while you, you do have a really strong, consistent period of loading and you do build that capacity to then be able to run fives, four fifties and, and recover. Yeah. Yeah, but also, and I... You know, we, we always talk about how common running injuries are. You know, mm. some studies show up to 79% in six months. Like, that is almost incredible. So I think as a runner or as an athlete or anyone that plays sport, you know, you will very likely suffer an injury sometime in your career or pre-season. So, yeah, you, you've just got to be have an understanding that these things will happen it's just a part of what what you do and that's you know you get the enjoyment out of it and this is just the the bad mm. side to, to all injury and pathology totally well i've gotten a i'm gonna try and build my love back up for the zwift mm. which i think <sighs> is going to be an impossible task oh, suck. but it's, swimming yeah. i'll do enjoy so yeah, i and can, gym, and I gym. can swim and gym yeah and hopefully it's only for like a week or 10 days. Hey, what about, actually, we've got Nikki on coming on, obviously, for this episode. What did Nikki suggest about being in the gym? Because I probably, if it was a patient, I would have suggested something different and it's always awesome to learn. Mm. And she has so much experience. But yeah, what, what did yeah. you suggest Yeah, so for this I've been week? talking to Nikki, who is uh, going to be talking to us about proximal hamstring tendinopathy in a second. But I, I just think, and, and this is relevant to everyone listening to this, if you're a physio or a podiatrist or any kind of Cairo, osteo, anything, diesel mechanic. If you get injured, just talk to someone else about it. I, I really think there is so much value in, in that. Oh, someone as in else the patient or the uh, health professional? Like, I know how to manage oh, yeah. medial tibial stress syndrome, mm. but I can't manage it when I'm the patient. Like, mm. I just, it's just, I go a bit crazy, I think. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah. So, I, I feel so much better just asking someone else and, and really having another clinician treat me. Yeah. I, I think that there's so blind. much value in that. In 100%. Yeah. yeah. You came home, I was rolling on that tennis ball for like the yeah, last I come, 30 Yeah, so I come home come in and so our house is designed where you walk in the door you look to your left and there's our lounge room and tv i walk in and kelly is on the on the tennis ball massaging it 
far out. I almost threw out the window. <laughs> I thought, what is this crap? What are you doing? Sometimes it's both. Okay, I understand, and you know that I'm not. I completely understand that, yes, if it feels good and it's a short term pain, watch later, and if you understand the narrative, it's fine. But for something like bone, logically that should only make it worse <laughs> and you know that do some calf raises instead well funny you say that actually so mm. because it's an acute flare-up mm. of symptoms nikki has recommended to to just stay off any load-bearing activities so that's calf raises walking squatting deadlifting lunging just just let it calm down as mm. much as possible yeah without just putting in any extra stress on it mm. If it was if it was more of like a, a chronic on off situation, then that's mm. when there might be some um, merit to loading it a bit. But mm. when it is that acute flare up, it probably does just need a, a short rest. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so I'll I'll finish that off with my well, so my low was basically seeing that patient and having that discussion and just you know seeing all those things in there. Pardon me, in their personal life, which yeah, it always happens. It doesn't happen all the time. But every, every so often it, it happens and I think to myself, you know, as, as a clinician, especially a younger clinician or a student, you don't learn a lot about how to manage the psychosocial aspects of someone's life. But just being aware of it, I think, is, is important. And then also not saying to them, hey, you know, your stress levels make your injury worse, but, you know, just kind of, I guess not wording in there I always love the cup analogy and I just draw it into their cup and go hey you know this is something that that does experience sorry this does change your experience of pain and it's important to understand but and I kind of move on from it how do you how do you talk about stress oh that's hard yeah Yeah. it's gonna depend on the person and I think their personality type yeah yeah and the context of of how it's sort of coming up I, I probably bring more relevance of it to it when when they do um, bring it up themselves um, yeah I don't know that's a hard question to answer I think it's really mm. going to depend on the person and their situation yeah sorry to be a bit vague on that one no no you're right it is these questions it's better to be vague and then say tell people that stress makes pain worse yeah <laughs> I don't think that, that, that that's the way to do it no I, definitely I think, not definitely not I don't think um, you know just just yeah, I don't yeah. know. But I think there's some value in them being aware of it because they, you know, I, I love, and maybe that's just my bias, I really like when patients have an understanding that there's multiple factors that contribute, one to their pain and one to the injury. And actually, that's probably another low for mm. this week. I had a lovely, lovely patient who had heel pain for for a couple of years. Lovely lady. She just come in and said, oh, it's because of my weight. I'm overweight. And... Mm. You know, I we, we know that BMI is, is implicated in lower limb pathology and especially in heel pain. It's one of the two risk factors. One is BMI, one is having a heel spur. It's been identified to be a risk factor for plantar heel pain. And when I was younger, I was very much afraid of saying that it's a contributor, but, you know, we did end up talking towards the end of the consult that, yes, her BMI does play into, you know, the pain at the moment and likely the a contributing factor to the injury. However, we don't know how much. So... How much is it worth focusing on? Let's just focus on the things we can, and that's you know modifying your load, soft, comfy inner soles, heel lifts, good shoes, some strength and conditioning, that kind of thing. I think I think having thought about that a little bit more mm-hmm. now, I think what I tend to do is is kind of ask the person that uh, like ask them if they mm-hmm. think it affects them. So if I'm sort of going through um, their subjective history or, or sort of talking about the cup analogy. 
Um, and I, I, I sort of say to them, if they say they've been a bit stressed with work or work's been busy or something like that, I sort of say, you know, do you think that there's any contribution of that with mm-hmm. your pain? Or do you notice if when you're feeling a bit more like this, your pain is worse? And, and I actually feel like more often than not, patients are like, oh, yeah, maybe a little bit, actually. Yeah. Now that you mention that, yeah. I think I do notice that. I, I think I do it more just to get them to reflect on the fact that other things could be contributing. Mm-hmm. It, and and yeah. that's probably more so in that initial consult where I'm not going to just like vomit a bunch of information onto them that they might put their wall up against. It's more so just sort of asking the question to get them thinking mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. And then yeah. later down yeah. the track, I might draw a little bit mm-hmm. more attention it's that. tricky it's tricky yeah. and you're right and you're so right picking the patient knowing when to do it and usually you're doing it multiple times as well there's nothing more frustrating when when you really explain something well and you think you've got this really good patient you know practitioner alliance and it's completely normal and you come back the second time and they just say the same thing and it's like well that's just how, how it is you can't expect your patients to take in everything that you mm-hmm. say mm-hmm. you know what's the statistic now in taking like 11 percent or yeah. something like that yeah Anyway, so I'll quickly end with my high, which was, I don't know if I want to bring it up now, which was running 83 kilometers this week, which yeah, is the most course. I've ever, uh, so most I've ever run in a week. And, you know, and I feel, I mean, I'm talking about a marathon build. I've only been doing it for probably three weeks now. And this week I hated running. Monday to Friday sucked. I think it's been really busy at work and the uni and podcasts and things like that. So just trying to squeeze in some running. Got the kilometres done. Hated it. And then Saturday went for a run with Nikki. Easy 30. And then today did a 25k long run. And I'm back. Frothing it. Yeah, it was so good. Mm. Body felt good. And you just... And I've heard people say you have those kind of ups and downs. But, you know, on the Inside Running podcast, they say that you just... And I'm sure people that build for marathons know this you there's times where you just feel really crappy and you yeah. feel really down because okay. you're loading so much yeah but yeah it was it was awesome that was a great weekend of running yeah you've done well you've had a great run and the other high was the uni has where i so i teach one day at wyong hospital and then on a friday but at wyong hospital we now have a dedicated with the students biomechanics room where we've got 3d scanners we've got a treadmill beautiful big room so anyone with pain discomfort come down the student clinic it's tuesday preferably because i'll be there as a supervisor and i think it's like 25 dollars for an initial consult and it's an hour and it's bloody awesome so that was really really fun and it's good to see we're really trying to get um you know when you know spearheaded in the biomechanics musculoskeletal world and trying to teach some you know better rehab and orthotic prescription and patient questioning just awesome stuff so that was really great and it really is rewarding to see the students so happy down there that doing is that cool. stuff yeah that which is, is cool. cool my highs i've got two i'll be quick two first no, one did you take your time first one all right thanks for the <laughs> <laughs> go, go go um first one is we're about to watch berlin marathon mm. and i'm feeling super optimistic that kipchoge go is going to do sub two hour marathon go i've kipchoge. got a 50 dollar bet going with yeah. joe and um i reckon he's going to do he's it i'm, I'm feeling it i'm thinking he's going to channel my excitement TBR. for him yeah channel my tbr go <laughs> second one is i saw a patient this week on wednesday with a really acute, nasty flare-up of low back pain. He couldn't even walk into the clinic. Like, he was walking in, like, Mm. hands braced against his thighs. It was Mm. really, really bad. Nerve pain, like, all down his leg. Um, 
came in and he was like, I just, I, I think I need surgery. He's got an appointment with the specialist this Wednesday, spine specialist. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I, I just, I can't like deal with this pain anymore. It's just horrific. I think I'm going to have to have an operation on this. I think they're going to have to fuse my spine. Um, this is common. Had too. a really good. This happens a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen a, a nasty flare up of low back pain like this mm. guy has had in a, in a while. To the point where it's just so irritated, you can't even assess anything or do anything really. Like most of it was just a conversation on education around it and trying to de-threaten the problem. Um, and then I saw him again on Friday after just you know not saying that I'm like magic, but I. I saw him I'm on sorry Friday. Sorry, short. You change people's lives as a physio. And he came in walking, and he was like, "I listened to what you said, and I started doing some exercise yesterday, just getting it moving, doing all the self-management strategies to try and make it feel a little bit better. And I feel, I feel like I've, you know, turned a corner today. Mm. I feel really good. I can walk. Like I'm starting to get a bit sore now, but I'm now so much more optimistic." that it can get better. And it was just really like one of those patients where you're like, wow, like you thought you were going to have to have a fusion like you, and maybe you would have because it was just that unrelenting pain that would not change. And, you know, I, I feel like I really helped him. It was a good feeling. Great. Awesome. Well, yeah, that's good. Well, let's leave it there and let's finish that off. And everybody enjoy this lovely episode with Nikki Manville from New You Moves, Proximal Hamstring Tendinopathies, Part 2. Kelly, anything to say before we leave these lovely listeners for a lovely episode? No, I just really enjoyed this episode um, as I did the first one, and I think you'll all get lots out of it. Awesome stuff. Catch you later, guys. Have a lovely week as always. What about if you think there's like a bursitis involved? I think is that... that's the one. I think that is the time when it does get more mm. sensitive to touch. Yeah. Um, I have seen a case of a bursitis where I've palpated it and been like, oh, that's really tender. Mm. And the person ended up having like a big florid tendinopathy with heaps of fluid around the outside of the tendon and a big bursitis. And they responded quite well to just a cortisone. So they just cortisone in the bursa around the tendon and it just... When you say fluid around the outside of the tendon, like can can peritendinitis happen in ham, in proximal hamstring tendons? Yeah, I don't think it, I don't know if it's called I don't know if it's the same type as like an Achilles. As like an Achilles, yeah. but essentially, yeah. And I think that's the whole that whole frictioning yeah. thing that we talked that I spoke about earlier. I think that's a similar right case, mm. and it's what's reported on MRI. So mm. the imaging modalities have I finished my <laughs> I don't want to like keep skipping topics but I think I'm pretty much finished my examination mm. component but the imaging comes into this importantly as well because a lot of people do bring in imaging they bring mm. in oh I've had an ultrasound I've had an MRI I've had this I've had that um, and what we know is that as people age hamstring tendon changes are like so common mm. and I think again it speaks to the anatomy if you get a tendon and you wrap it around a bit of bone and you get people to sit on it all day and load it all day and mm. it's going to change. And, yeah, tendon changes and fluid signal around the tendon, bursal signal around the issue tuberosity, it all, and, you know, fraying of the tendon and partial tears and stuff are hugely common in the general population who don't have any symptoms. Yeah. So yeah. sending someone for an image to rule in... A hamstring tendinopathy is pretty useless. Mm-hmm. 
potentially sending someone for an image if they had that complex case of a bit of deep gluteal pain, a bit of low back pain, a bit of SIJ pain, a bit of referral down the leg. It's a bit confusing. All their tests are positive, don't know what's wrong. Potentially, like a MRI might exclude a hamstring yeah. tendinopathy. What, what do you, and I know this, I think, as it comes with experience, because you're probably pretty understanding of when what imaging is, is probably indicated. But younger clinicians, do you recommend them sending to whether it be you know someone like yourself or someone that deals with hamstrings more or straight to the sports doctor or sending for an MRI because I know even the students at the university they wouldn't they wouldn't feel comfortable sending someone for an MRI which I know comes with experience as you become more confident um are there any recommendations you'd give on that or what would be your, your plan I think whenever you're feeling the need to send someone for an image you have to understand what the uh, appropriate imaging modality is mm. what its sensitivity and specificity is how how confident you're going to be in getting the results back and knowing what to do with that person anyway so I always say to my a lot of the time I'm not the primary referrer for imaging I you know nine out of ten people that I send for imaging I send via the sports docs yeah and it's purely because once you get the result of that image what are you going to do anyway so mm. If, it do, if the reason I'm sending that person for an image is to confirm or rule out something more sinister or something more nasty or I want to confirm a particular diagnosis that might be more challenging for me to manage, I'm going to need their help anyway. Right, yeah. um, and so a lot of the cases that I'm conf- confident and comfortable managing don't need imaging. Like mm. I sort of know what it is. I think I know how to treat it. I'm going to manage it my way without needing the image to confirm or deny what it is. And then if it's not responding to my approach, then I'd send them via sports men to have the imaging done. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it would be, yeah, it would be a rare situation where I'm sending someone first port of call. I don't know what's wrong. I'm going to send you for an image to check this. Anyway, yeah. yeah. I think if I was like, I don't know what's wrong. Get the doctor. Get the doc in. involved. Get yeah. them to do their diagnostics, mm-hmm. imaging, and then do a workup to work out what you know Get what the best there. treatment is. Yeah. yeah. So if you've so subjective objective done, you're confident. It's a PHT, or four PhDs, so we um, use the analogy. Just to save time. time, now we're talking about it, so I'll probably waste some time. But you're like, yes, you've got a PhD, we're very confident. Educational points that you're giving are probably in the initial assessment and then following up, like, what are you telling them about this this pathology and this tendon? Uh, yeah, that's a big one. So the, I think my first consult a lot of the time with my prox hemi-tendon tendinopathy patients are... Um, Firstly, I'd give them a really big, long-winded story about my own experience. No, I don't really. <laughs> I don't really. <laughs> Make it all about me. <laughs> I tell them all about my case study. No, <laughs> I, I try to, I try to understand what their goals are to start with. So, if this person's super hell bent on smashing out a sub twenty-minute part, I, I was thinking. I didn't know. Not many people will be able to do it. No, but. it's only the few elite, few elite people in the room can do that. <laughs> So if they have specific goals that require hills and hurdles and sprinting and stuff, I might have to like dial that in a little bit and mm. say, well, maybe that time frame might be unrealistic or it's going to significantly be, you know, you're going to have to put up with a certain amount of pain if you're going to do mm. that. Um, so pay, and then man- managing expectations within that setting. So if they're like, I want to be able to do this, okay, you can at some point it's going to take time all tendons take time you can't rush them the more you rush them the crankier they get and the slower they respond so Mm -hmm. i feel that you know 
um, I educate them a lot about, you know, days on, days off, days on, days off, and not smashing it every day, not doing too much with it, not doing like consistency of training is the most important thing. They have to be super consistent. If they're not consistent, they're not going to get better and mm. um, they have to stick and tr- trust the rehab process and it will be in stages and I sort of talk them through what the stages are and what they are to expect over the coming months, not mm. weeks. Like this is not something that will be fixed in weeks. It's often months um, depending on how cranky it is and, mm. and things. Like some, some are just like a quick flare and then you can give them appropriate advice and it settles down. But others that have been there for months going to take months to settle Um, so a lot of education around that lots of education about do's and don'ts so I find the majority of people go wrong not avoiding the things on the don't list so they you know they keep stretching it they keep poking at it they Mm -hmm. keep sticking dry needles in it they keep Mm -hmm. you know doing yoga and sitting on it all day and all the things that I would say don't do they're still doing those things they might be doing a really appropriate well not even a really appropriate strength program but they might be loading their hamstring in the gym because they think that that's what they need to do but they're also still doing all the really negative things to the hamstring at the same time so you can't just do the positive things and hope it'll get better you have to avoid the negative things as well Mm. um i don't i'm I'm, i used to be like don't stretch ever for tendons but now i I, at some in some cases i wonder if if it is just sort of exposing them to an irritated load like obviously within reason like people i feel like patients think that stretching is the the most important thing in the world so they do heaps of it so i feel like my conversation is probably more so about not not doing it but just not feeling like you should do it all the time i don't know yeah, I think that um, I would agree. I think that stretching is not the devil. It's just for low value treatment. It's such a low value, mm. and it's potentially negatively influencing their rehab. Like if they're gonna, if they're gonna have a crack at doing it the best possible way, if they're gonna do every one percent they can, stretching's a negative one percenter. Like mm. it's mm. going the other way. I think. And what's it actually achieving? What's it actually achieving? Um, other than a short term potential relief feeling that they get so a lot of people oh it feels good to stretch it yeah it does but it's squishing the shit out of your semimembranosis up against your bone um and probably pulling on your sciatic nerve and probably doing this and doing that and not necessarily making things better you could probably instead of stretching how about you just dig the shit out of your heel into Mm, something and just get a good isometric for a little while or how about you just stand up and stop sitting on it and do this and do that like there's lots of things people can do in that positive column that are way that are going to help them get better a lot more than the and that gives them relief as well like doing exercise or resistance training gives you relatively the same relief as stretching i always say to my patients like initially when you start these exercises you're going to hate them like i fucking hate bridging it is the word i hate it i hate laying on my back and putting my feet up on something and lifting my butt up and like it's the worst exercise ever but (laughs) After a while, like it gives you such a good relief. Like you, you stand up and walk away, and you're like, I feel better for doing that. And you see improvements in your strength, and you can, like, you can see that oh, I couldn't hold 15 seconds doing this two weeks ago, and now I'm holding it for 30 seconds. You see these improvements, and you start to kind of crave. My hamstring hurts, and you're like, oh, almost instinctively mm. want to lie on the ground and do your rehab because yeah. it gives you that relief. Mm. Um, it's the same with all the other tendons as well. You know, you get you get this really strong pain relief response from exercising the tendon. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, what about like deadlifts? What do you think about them? (laughs) Deadlifts are controversial. So, um, I think that 
in the I think this is where some where people can go wrong and this is probably another little clinical pearl is in the assessment process both in the history and in the physical exam you'll get a sense of whether this person has more of a problem under stretch and tensile loading Mm. or under compressive type loading and there's sort of a split that can occur in rehab where initially so I think once you get to sort of the stage three component of rehab so stage one or they talk about rehab in different stages for the proximal hamstring yeah let's let's go through that rehab phase those phases because I'm sure that will come up in that so most most rehab they taught for tendons they break it up into phases so like stage one would be your early iso like isometric type holds in positions of next to no hip hip flexion so it might be like a prone hamstring knee bend like hold it might be like a heel up bridge hold or a long lever bridge hold so they're all things where your hips are fully extended and you're just holding that position digging your heel um and then you progress into stage two which is like your isotonic stuff so it's either heavy slow resistance or an eccentric type contraction and again depending on what the person can wrap their head around so some people can't get eccentric some people can't get the heavy slow resistance thing so you just tailor the rehab to them and i don't think it really matters Um, i tend to like a um, small amplitude isotonic so they're just moving nice and slowly through that contraction and keeping it heavy and then doing like a heavy slow resistance model where you work backwards from that high repetition high volume stuff and you get heavier and you drop your repetitions down then you'd move into progressive hip flexion angles and I think this is where people stuff up so once you're tolerating those little isotonic contractions and tolerating small amplitude when you start to increase the range of motion at the hip you can go a couple of ways about it you can keep your knees bent and you can do exercises like squats and lunges and step ups and things that compress the tendon at the hip or you can go more your rack pull, deadlift, single leg mm. RDL where your knee is extended. So one is a very stretchy, tensile, loady thing because it's pulling the hamstring at mm. both the distal end and you're getting the compression at the hip. And then one, you're keeping the hamstring reasonably short, but you're compressing the shit out of it at the hip. So mm. I think that's where some people can go wrong. I think they might, if the person is intolerant to the stretch or they're having more issues with that tibial deceleration Mm-hmm. stretch component and they're not having as much issue with the deep hip flexion component if they introduce the deadlifty stuff too soon shit will hit the fan mm. and then vice versa if people are having more trouble with compressive positions they might be better doing more of a deadlift a slider a arabesque rdl thing and they might not tolerate deep leg pressing and lunges and those sorts of exercises so um, that's the delineation i try to make with my rehab i'm like oh this person looks like they're going to go this way and I sort of sort of tailor their rehab towards doing a wall sit and a wall ball squat and a squat and then a leg Mm. press and a lunge and work them up that way and hip flexion but I keep their knees in Mm. and then other people I kind of start to extend their leg out further and do more of a slider type RDL stuff. Do you then progress that those groups into the other thing that you're not doing? Yeah Yeah, they do like a crossover almost. Yeah yeah. Yeah, like once your hip you know, once your proximal hamstring tendon can tolerate the tensile pulling lengthened position, cool, now let's squish it into a squatty type position. Mm. Once you can tolerate the squat, now let's mm. sort of deadlift on it. Mm. Um, definitely, I try and do a bit of a crossover. But I think that's something clinically that I find. I feel like if you can make that delineation, um, that 
but that can be helpful. And do you think that that's more for managing pain or to get them to be able to do like their activity or do you think that it's a bit of both? I think a bit of both. I think, well, trying to load the tendon so that it will sort of sort out its pathology. So I think if, um, if one that's not tolerant to compression and then we compress it too quickly, it's just going to blow up. I think compressing it at some point is necessary mm. to allow it to adapt to compressive load. But I think if you do that too early in the phase, it's going to get cranky. And I think that might also be a trial and error thing as well. So you might introduce some deadlifts and the person's hammy just goes, oh, shit, I can't do that. So you go, cool, let's just maybe do some squatting and lunging and stuff instead for a little while mm-hmm. and not, not progress the length mm-hmm. of the hemi too quickly. Mm-hmm. And then stage four is your faster stuff, so mm-hmm. it's your energy storage release stuff. Now, I don't think it has to be linear like that. No, I, I smudge it. Yeah, yeah. I smudge it. So stage four is smudged into stage three for me. I don't think there's any reason someone can't be doing little fast movements in a short range like there's no reason you can't do little mini bridges quicker Mm. if you can tolerate doing them slower and heavier while you're doing your other higher compressive stuff so i do a bit of a mixed bag there Mm. same as my achilles as well you don't just do heavy slow resistance but you might be doing some little skipping and hopping Mm. exercises as well at the same time they don't have to have nailed all of this stuff in stage three before they progress to stage four and then what are you what are you saying to patients in regards to pain like how how much pain should they be experiencing if any and how do you help them understand that that's really tricky so i used to always talk about this four out of ten <laughs> you know oh you should expect it. you know i always say that the exercises should be painful i don't think i think if they're not giving the person some discomfort potentially they're not hard enough mm-hmm. unless it's later obviously so if they're not feeling the pain at the time and then afterwards they feel it you know that's obviously normal so i think pain at the time or afterwards is expected if it's not no discomfort the exercise needs to be made more challenging so that's something that some patients don't like mm. they don't like pain and they're mm. here to see me they want to see me to get out of pain not to get mm. in pain not so then managing expectations comes in um the other thing is the response um, or that paint that four out of ten everyone's like what's a four out of ten so I've sort of moved to just talking about discomfort and tolerance mm-hmm. so it should be uncomfortable it should be tolerable mm-hmm. um, if it if it makes you modify your day significantly like if you're if you just can't sit for the rest of the day if you're shifting and you're uncomfortable and you can't sleep and it's like you need to reach for pain relief it's you've pushed it way too hard mm-hmm. if you're limping or you know if mm-hmm. it's if you pushed it too hard, you would know about it. So if it's if it's comfortable or if it's uncomfortable but tolerable, that's usually the words that I use. And then it should settle within a 24-hour period. So if you've aggravated it on the Monday, mm-hmm. by the Tuesday, I know it's like gone and it's okay again. Um, and then that's important about um, dosage as well. So in the early stages, when you're in that stage one, two phase, often people are doing those exercises quite often. So doing them most days, sometimes twice a day. And then as you progress through those stages of rehab, you're doing them far less often. So that's when people plateau out and they start seeing that their recovery is not happening as quickly. But it just needs time because you can't hit super fast, speedy stuff and super heavy, slow stuff and have these hectic big gym programs and hit them every day. You need to do them like two to three mm-hmm. times a week. And then if they're still running on top of that as well. Correct. And yeah. I find that sometimes doubling up gym and rehab on the same day is better than trying to space it throughout the week because then people can actually have rest days mm. rather than having 
gym on Monday, run on Tuesday, gym on Wednesday, run on Thursday, and it turns out they haven't had any days off in their week. They need yeah. that rest. So, mm. what do you say to the adjunct therapies? <coughs> um, I know you and I have a bit of a gripe about shockwave. <laughs> I'm not gripe. You just have a rager about shockwave every time we talk about. I only it. because, and even Jill said yesterday. Jill Cook said to me, and also the crowd. I don't know which one she was. She was, she was like, making eyes well, at you. What <laughs> actually happened? She, I thought that she was going to say it's good because research is good, but she's like. I don't give a crap what you do. If it makes them feel better and they leave with an active rehab program, I'm happy. I was like, come on, Shockwave's a little bit better than that. Yeah, give me a little bit more. more. Yeah. So the current evidence, from what I understand currently around Shockwave and proximal hamstring tendons is that a randomised control trial showed that it was more effective than multimodal therapy, which included exercise, massage, anti-flams bits and pieces now if you dig deeper into the exercises it said the exercises included a hamstring stretch (laughs) (laughs) um cycling and lunging for three weeks (laughs) so i mean take your shockwave and shove it or create a better trial was the shockwave group just shockwave alone i think so yeah yeah so and i think that um, not that those exercises are helping no, anyone. Anyway. Nice I, I, I don't get. I don't. Anyway, they need to do some sort of big trial looking at shockwave versus sham versus mm. shockwave versus and like exercise and like, shockwave versus just exercise. Alone. Correct. Yeah, and and design and you know this is the whole research and practice network thing that we're trying to establish is going right. Well, that study was useless. Like, <laughs> not useless. It that was gave us some information, but if you had decent, not decent. I sound awful. If you have. Um, experienced clinicians going well let's design a rehab process that we would practically actually give to someone with a proximal hamstring tendon pain design that it's not going to be a three-week program it's going to be a three-month or six-month program Mm. and now let's see if shockwave if the addition of shockwave is Mm. you know improves these people's outcomes or not so if it did would you come see me tomorrow yeah, I'd send, yeah, <laughs> if it did, but again, my hamstring might be different because I'm rupture. So. Mm, it's, it's interesting though, like, because, you know, everything that we've just discussed is that compression hurts a lot of the time and it's something that aggravates symptoms. It doesn't really make much sense as to how it would feel good. It does though. It stimulates free nerve endings <laughs> to the point of numbness <laughs> and also true. through re- revascularization, so more blood flow. But well, that blood but flow arguments, <laughs> like do some <laughs> jumps or something, like yeah. that'll help blood flow. No. Or just stop sitting on it, maybe that'll improve <laughs> blood flow as well. And other like so, other than other than shockwave, cortisone, <laughs> PRP. Yeah, so cortisone, PRP, um, they needs more evidence, but um, clinically, I see that the recalcitrant cases that don't seem to be responding to much, mm-hmm. do tend to respond to either like a peritendon cortisone. If there's, again, that's where the nuances of sports medicine and mm-hmm. looking at, at imaging come into it. But some of the ones that have some of that peritendon signal and swelling, often they respond to like a peritendon injection of cortisone just to settle it. Um, and then the PRP is similar so the um, PRP into the tendon they'll they'll have those three PRP shots spaced out a couple of weeks apart or whatever mm-hmm. it might be and they seem to 
I don't know what it is, but it sort of like hits a reset button for that person. And I don't know if it's like because they've invested the money in having the injection yes, and they've bought yeah. into it and they dial into their rehab more mm. or whether it actually does. Because mm. this is all happening while you're doing rehab as well. Yeah. And how, how often are you dry needling people? Hamstring <laughs> <laughs> tendon. Never. No condyl no. packing or anything like that. I don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> no. 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 None of that. No needling. Um, why? Yeah. I don't have a dry needling uh, certification for one. Mm-hmm. And two, because I don't think it would. Doesn't change the capacity. I don't think. Yeah, it doesn't improve tendon capacity. So mm. I, it's, I'm all about that. I think that if people want pain relief, cool. Like, that's not what my my remit is. I'm not a pain relief specialist. Like, if you want pain relief, friggin', I mean, there's a million people with shingles up that can give massages just mm. as good or if not better than me if you want a massage go get it somewhere else like mm. as a physio I'm yes skilled at giving massage but I'm more skilled in knowing when massage is indicated and when something else is indicated that's mm. more effective so yeah yeah, yeah cool. what um oh, far out I feel I should have said then oh it was something about massage I still want to ask about this peritendon thing yes if because Management for the peritendon and the Achilles is like the opposite to managing a tendinopathy, where you'd rest it more so, right? Yeah, I don't think we've I don't think we know enough about the peritendonitisy type case in a hamstring tendon. I don't think that's the same. I don't think it's the same. um, What I'm talking about with the, it's still more of a chronic case of a sheathy inflammatory Mm -hmm. signal thing around the outside, and that might just contribute to more tendon thickness and stuff and right. it te- seems to respond to some cortisone but i don't i don't know if necessarily just getting yeah, that person to rest would do help. the same thing okay that's um, good to know and what about anti-inflammatories are you encouraging people to take them depends technically we're not supposed to yeah, encourage no. people to take anti-inflammatories <laughs> but if, if um if it's a acute reactive case and the person's got constant discomfort or they've flared the shit out of it with a recent event and they're just shifting in their chair constantly uncomfortable they're almost limping to walk because it's that cranky then i think there's probably a place for a mm. short course of spanty flames to settle it mm. particularly if they can't they can't even manage like a low load contraction and a low load isometric non-provocative contraction they can't even do that it's just mm. super cranky then yeah but i think in your chronics i'm you know i'm reluctant to yeah mm. What um what tips do you give people like to manage during the day? Like with sitting, is there anything? I know you like have a towel sometimes underneath your leg. I don't know how well that works. You carry a little butt towel. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a wedge cushion. Do. Don't you start do. with me? There are some little tips and tricks, but the the basically trying to remove the compressive load on the issue of tuberosity. So. There's lots of things people can do with their office. <laughs> lots of things they can do with their office chairs, where they can like boost them up higher, shift them forward. So ergonomics has lost its mind with the whole your shorts. You have to have a footstool thing, and people end up sitting, you know, <laughs> they're sitting with their knees up around their shoulders, like typing away on a computer because they've got their feet up on a stool. So I'm like, get rid of the stool, put the seat a little bit higher, tip it forward, slide your bum to the edge of the seat. So you're literally your issue of tuberosity is off the chair. You're yeah. sitting on your sacrum on the edge of the seat. Yeah. Or slump more, like stop sitting so upright on your mm. issue of tuberosities. Get out of anterior pelvic tilt. Like slump, slide mm. forward in your chair, look super lazy. 
Mm, I like so they're that one. basic things that people can do. And, and people are like, what? I have permission to like slump. And I'm like, yeah, slump work. And definitely move, like stand up, shift off it. Or then there's offloading things like folding towels in various ways to create like a hole that your butt cheek drops into mm, in yeah. the chair or in the car. The car is a classic. So all cars are built with this slight like tip back. Mm. So your, your butt's sitting slightly lower than your knees a lot of the time in the car. So I always say to people, make sure your thighs are sort of pointing downwards so your knees are lower than your hips. You can't do that in a car a lot of the time. So that's where the wedge cushion is. <laughs> so the wedge comes in. So you can either get a wedge cushion or you can like roll up a towel and fold a series of towels into like a wedge shape to you lift get your bum up. those like mo- old mobility stores <laughs> you where you buy like four-wheel walkers and stuff. <laughs> yeah, you can't get a um, Or just something simple like a, like a little eggshell cushion and you can sort of just literally cut a little hole out of it. Um, get a knife into it just like cut a little hole for your butt cheek to sit into so if your thigh is if your if the back of your thigh is supported but your issue tuberosity is dropping into a gap that's kind of what you want yeah um but obviously that's only a temporary thing if you do that forever like often your body has to adjust to remove yeah short term yeah it's a short term fix for you know obviously at some point you need to be able to sit on your hamstring tendon again Mm. yeah Lovely. What um to to finish with what what tips I guess I don't want to say tips and tricks because I don't like people to think of them like that. But what advice would you give to to students and newer graduates and just anyone really dealing with any PhDs? And yeah. Um. Yeah. Good question. <laughs> so I think we've covered a lot of tips and tricks, haven't mm. we? But I think that understanding. I think so. For firstly. Like young physios or physios that are looking to treat proximal hamstring tendons better, I think, um, I don't know, understand the differential diagnoses and how what certain tests you might be able to do to quickly rule in or out other things or help guide how you might manage it um, differently. A thorough initial assessment almost. Yeah, thorough subjective. So because the subjective, a lot of the time, the subjective is the most important thing. So you should almost walk away from the subjective most of the time being able to say, I think that's a proximal hamstring tendon. It could be this, it could be that, it could be that. And I'm going to quickly examine those things to rule out those other things most of the time. So there should be specific questions you can dig deeper in the history to get to the bottom of it. (laughs) So that'd be the first thing. Second thing would be um, test the hamstring in lots of different positions and then try and tailor your treatment in reverse so start in the non-provocative positions so I always get my patients to um, grade them so I'm like Mm. out of all those things I just did what felt the worst and sometimes people are like oh I felt so bad when you made me do that flick test thing and I'm like all right that person doesn't like maximal (laughs) stretch and compression and flicking their leg out so Mm. I'm going to finish there and I'm going to start in prone and go the other way Um, which makes a lot of sense (laughs) yeah but some people are the reverse some people can do that and they don't get any symptoms but you lie them prone you get them to curl and they hate it so you're like right well you know maybe i need to start them in a slightly different position they can probably start with their heels up in more hip flexion where Mm. compared to someone who needs to start in full hip hip extension Mm. um Mm. and uh what else i think that nailing the your education and managing expectations is hugely important. So mm, that's a good one. Always add, always add time to whatever you think is going to be. So if you're thinking to yourself, oh, 
tendon, you know, we got taught at uni, oh, so, you know, if it's a tendon or, you know, soft tissue injuries are four to six weeks, like, fuck off. I've never treated a hamstring tendon in under six weeks. Yeah. Like, if like, everything goes right, every single if thing. everything goes right, you'll you be might. Just get there. So I'll <laughs> give you this exact time. Yeah, correct. Yeah. You might, you might be, you might have a little bit less pain and a little bit more strength at six weeks. But you're going to have to keep doing these exercises for probably six months. And if you want to be completely pain-free or at a level where you're really happy with your tendon, you're probably going to have to keep rehabbing this thing for 12 months. So Mm. depending on how cranky they made it with whatever flared it up, so that it doesn't keep coming back. And often that's a big sell as well. So I sort of say to people, a lot of the time these things come back because we sit on them all the time and because we stretch them all the time and because of the perfect storm of what's wrong with the anatomy, Mm. then often you have to see it through to the end you know and the end is sprinting up hills you know you know the the things that we find are the most provocative on the tendon they're the things i sort of tell the patient i often draw them like a little staircase and i'm like this is where you are at the moment you know boom 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 these are all the steps we need to do and you can cut out at any time you want but if in the future you ever want to do anything up here it's going to fall apart again like it's Mm. going to come back so if you want to see it through to the end these are all the things we need to do with rehab and that's going to take huge amount like that could take six months 12 months a long period of time so i think managing expectations is hugely important Mm. are Um, you following up with patients like um weekly or monthly given the fact that it's a long one or just depends on what they want to do or depends what they want to do how quickly they're trying to rush back to something Mm. um because i'm not seeing i think if the person can wrap their head around my rehab and i'm confident that what i'm giving them they can follow and so I often see them, initially I often see them in a week, so I'll educate them, give them the blurb, talk to them about the do's and don'ts, and it's super basic advice, like the don't sit, don't stretch, don't poke, don't whatever, get a wedge, take some anti-inflammatories if it's super inflamed, here's some like um, basic little ISO <coughs> things, here's your shockwave, <laughs> see you in a week. Take this cortisone home. Yeah, <laughs> see you in a week, they come back in a week, and often they have some questions or something they need to confirm or something else they want to tell me oh by the way i didn't realize i always sit with my legs crossed blah blah blah. Mm. we talk about that and then i would progress their rehab or show them what i want them to be able to do by the next time i see them and often that's in a fortnight and then i might see them in a fortnight again and and i'll do some rechecks of their strength measurements we did in session one and that's a really nice reassuring session so maybe after four ish weeks they might start to see some improvements in their strength or in their not strength but in their tolerance of Mm. load Mm. capacity and so i'm like right this is improving, super motivating. Here's your next program. And depending on how quickly they're changing, it could be a fortnight or it could be a month. And then once mm-hmm. I start seeing them every month, if they're making really good improvements and I can trust that they're going to follow what I'm going to give them, I'll see them monthly. But some people cut months too long. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you see yeah. someone in a month and they come back and they're like, oh, haven't done it, haven't done it. I had COVID, <laughs> couldn't get to the gym, whatever. Yeah. And they've only actually had two to three gym sessions in that month. I'm like, no, I'm good enough. You need to come. I need to see it more often. Mm-hmm. If you want to get this thing better, it's going to, we're going to need to see you sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas other people are fine. I can write them like a really complicated, complex gym program and they go and they do it three times a week and then they follow their running rehab program and everything. They come back in a month and they're better than I thought they were going to be. Yeah. So it just depends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lovely. That was right. great. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Nikki. Um, yeah, any parting words, quote, one sentence to finish with if you did have anything to leave people with? Um I'll put you on the spot here. We're going to always do this. Uh, I don't know. I, I look forward to the day that I don't have hamstring tendon pain. I, do as I say, not as I do. Yes. Mm. I say that every 
run as well. I'm the worst. I, I don't, I, I'm the worst. I don't do any hamstring tendon rehab. But I, I cop it. I'm like, I know that my hamstring's shit, but I, just deal, I just deal with it. it. Yeah, I deal with it. <laughs> All right, yeah. and good luck for the marathon. And we'll be, yeah, we might even post how you went, how the hamstring pulled up. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah, a little yeah. follow-up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me.